Great, so we should uh, start by introducing ourselves. Um, I'm Peter MacDonald and I've been uh, working in the English faculty at Oxford for the last uh, 15 or so years. Um, my main areas of interest are literature in the 20th century, I suppose the long 20th century from 1880 to the present. Um, but I've also been specifically working on the institutional aspects of literature, literature and the law and those sorts of things. And that's partly why I'm having this conversation with Leora Lazarus. Um, well, and Leo, I'm Leora Lazarus and I um, am a law fellow at uh, St Anne's College at Oxford and I teach human rights. I work in comparative human rights, uh, mostly um, to do recently with the ideas of rights to security. Um, but I look at different jurisdictions and I wrote a book originally which looked very closely at the sort of different cultural um, conditions for beliefs about rights. Um, and my interest in freedom of speech is obviously part of that that discussion. Um, so one, one of the reasons we uh, hear both of us is because both of us have a, uh, a background uh, from uh, South Africa and experience of South Africa during the apartheid years and uh, that's relevant because part of the um, basis for the discussion is a book that I've just written called The Literature Police, Apartheid Censorship and Its Cultural Consequences, which um, uh, engages with some of the strange aspects of uh, the apartheid censorship system, uh, most particularly the fact that um, though it was obviously a system of primarily political and, uh, um, if you like, moral uh, censorship and repression, uh, there were a particular group of censors um, who belonged to a particular faction within the Africana elite uh, who saw themselves as the guardians of literature. So within a system of repression, you had people who were specifically protecting a certain kind of speech, if you like, a certain kind of expression, mm. uh, which they called literature. Um, so we're going to use that as the part of the background to the discussion. Uh, but we each, each of us have a different kind of expertise and a different uh, um, angle on this history. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about having this kind of discussion between someone who's expert in, in literature and coming to it from the position of literature to law and then someone like me who's looking at this from a range of legal perspectives but particularly from the position of looking at how rights like freedom of expression or freedom of speech are protected or not protected in different regimes is, is, is of course what particular perspectives we bring to this. One of the um, interesting this sort of theories of of law in, um, is, was developed by someone called Nicholas Luhmann who talks about systems theory and he believes law has a sort of internal logic which we um, think about between legal and illegal that there's a binary code in, in that framework and that what happens is that law itself has to embrace concepts from the outside world which then what he calls Caesar's perturbations. This was developed in further by a theorist called Gunther Teubner and concepts that come into law then have to be redefined and reconstituted in a particular way um, to to be understood from the perspective of what forms legality or illegality. Um, and uh, this is one of the, 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 the key questions here because I'm coming at this looking at literature or at expression as a particular legal concept and of course you are coming at it from a position of, of, of well what position are you coming from? What to think about it? Well, in a sense, it would be, uh, um, I hope, keeping an eye on 
the questions that you've just raised and the questions within the legal tradition yeah um, and also within certain kinds of uh, um, philosophical thinking uh, yeah. about about uh, the nature of the law freedom of expression those sorts of things um, but of course particularly coming at it from a from a literary point of view where um, despite uh, the confidence and assurance of some literary people uh, one of the most interesting things certainly in the last in the late 20th century one of the most interesting things we, we, we can say about literature is that it's constantly evading definition. Mm. So as a, as a concept itself, it is inherently fuzzy, contestable, debated. Mm. Um, and so for me, uh, what's interesting is what happens when you get into a, not just the discourse of the law, but maybe even a situation in a court. You know, there've been famous literary trials throughout history, the Lady Chatley trial yeah. in the 60s and so on and so forth. Um, and where you've not only got this c concept or category, this loose, amorphous concept or category coming into the debate, but you've also got pressures of evidential proof on, say, the part of uh, um, you know, prosecution or defense or juries to deal with, you know, where, where if you're going to start saying that you know, literature demands special treatment or, or exemption, you, you've also got to speak under, under constraints of proof, which may be too much for this concept to bear. So it's not only the category itself that's a problem, but the, the conditions under which you may have to speak as a lawyer. And, and, and in, in what sense do, do, do you think that the law should have any relationship with literature? Can you just explain more about the statute, because this is your area of, of expertise, the statutory frameworks in which literature, or being defined as literature, what would be the legal consequences of that definition? Um, I think uh, the Historically, the law yeah. has had a lot to do with it, uh, especially in the 20th century, and it's yeah. especially to do with obscenity law. Yeah. Um, and one of the concerns has always been uh, amongst certain state elites um, is that when you start to uh, want to ban or suppress pornography, say, mm -hmm. uh, you tend to capture within that net and historically have caught within that net great works of literature, yeah. James Joyce's Ulysses, Lady Chatley's lover, etc., etc. Um, so there has been an, an anxiety, certainly throughout the 20th century, and in fact you can trace this back into the 19th century, um, to protect uh, what they what they consider to be literature uh, from this law. And the standard strategy has been to appeal and to seek some sort of exemption uh, from the law for this particularly privileged kind of public writing called yeah. literature. Um, but of course, that's caused endless problems. And uh, um, that uh, is, is built into, the, say, the Obscene Publications Act of, of 1959 in the UK, where there is a special uh, exemption clause for, for literature. And in fact, the act was partly specifically designed, as it says at the beginning, to protect literature. Mm. Uh, but the, the consequences of that have been you know, really problematic. Uh, the protection didn't extend, for instance, to uh, um, last exit to Brooklyn in, in 1966 and so on mm. and so forth. Um, my, my own conclusion would be that, uh, is to share the, the conclusion of Ber the Bernard Williams report in, in the UK in 1979, which is that if you want to protect literature, the only thing you can do is, not simply, is to simply remove debate about literature or literary worth or merit or anything from any legal context, and simply their recommendation was give exemption to the printed word, full exemption to the printed word, for, in terms of obscenity legislation that was specifically. Mm. Of course, apartheid censorship dealt, dealt with much more than mm. obscenity. We'll come back a bit to apartheid censorship in a minute, but what I'm interested in is if you give 
full exemption to the, the printed word. I mean, now there's a huge discussion about how you manage um, the electronic age and the printed word in the electronic age, and what, how do you create structures? I mean, is that a is that a viable uh, recommendation of Williams's committee when you think that we're all capable of publishing our own books essentially um, electronically? Um, and surely people would argue that that there are there's still going to be things that are the pr in printed form that raise questions that the state has to engage with. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that's right. I mean, the the conclusion uh, that was reached in 1979, the conditions uh, have changed so dramatically. And yeah. um, now, for instance, if you put it into the context now, just recently in the UK, there's been a a trial um, and uh, and a conviction on race hate um, mm. with publications on the internet. Yeah. So um, there's no doubt that, in a sense, uh, the the ideal, if mm. you like, um, that the Williams Commission reached in 1979 um, is uh, something that has to be rethought completely mm. under these new conditions. Then, of course, a lot of lawyers and legal philosophers would all say, and we're all we're dealing with this all the time, is the deep contestability of most of the concepts that we deal with. I mean, the simplest legal concepts that we have, like reasonableness or the reasonable man on the Clapham omnibus, yeah. um, has given rise to um, that, you know, hundreds of cases and yeah. endless uh, pieces of, you know, the whole academic careers are based on these things. Yeah. So, so what, what is it that's specifically contestable about literature as opposed to something like reasonableness? The specific contestability would be um, the difficulty of simply establishing uh, what it is that you are talking about. Right. Whether there is something general that you can appeal to which will help you define that. And mm. part of the problem with that is um, that uh, there seems to be, certainly in the theoretical debate within literary studies, mm. there seems to be a, a, um, a problem of simply drawing the boundaries between certain kinds of writing that you want to call literary and other kinds of writing that you, you don't. Mm. So, for instance, you know, there's, there can be a very convincing argument made for reading, say, Dar Darwin's Origin of Species yeah. as a literary work, to approaching that as a literary reader. Mm. So that's one question. Where, where do you draw the boundaries between mm. these kinds of writing? But the other one is, again, a lot of people point out, is that one of the most interesting things about literature is it's, it is itself constantly changing its own rules Right. about what constitutes literature. Yeah. So there's, if you like, you can almost say an internal and an external problem. And that seems to give it a particularly mm. um, powerful yeah. lack of determinacy. One of the things I thought was very interesting about your book, was, was which brought it brought out very clearly, is w when you take this form of contestability and then you, str you, you, you then give rise to... I think there's additional problems, not internal and external, purely on a contestability question. But there's the problem of the structure around which that term is protected. Yeah. So your book is really a very interesting analysis of these committees, these people, mm -hmm. who get given the authority and power to determine mm -hmm. the notion of literature. Mm -hmm. um, because it seems that a lot of these regimes give, even now in South Africa or in the UK, you, get, you have a set of people who determine what that is. And that means that you... not it's essentially the same old age traditional argument against constitutional courts, for example, where people say that you can't give the constitutional judges the last word on the notion of what dignity means, for example, because it's anti-democratic, it has no sense of, 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 of popular discussion around that notion, mm -hmm. and we'd rather have popularly 
voted people, and this seems in the censorship framework, or let's call it the classification framework, is what you yeah. talk about now. What have we now? Um, the classification framework seems to me to be even more elite than judges, who mm-hmm. in a sense are far more scrutinized mm-hmm. in the public sphere and are part of a kind of commonly understood constitutional framework of checks and balances, um, and also who understand their, their own ideas of self-restraint constitutionally. Yeah. But now we have this thing called the classification board. Yeah. Now, typically, these classification boards are, are, are filled with, with experts, right? Whether they're in apartheid South Africa and a particular form of sort of literary experts in the Afrikaans elite or whether they're, they're in this country. Now, that seems to me a really complicated relationship because yeah. uh, it gives rise to, to, to issues of, 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 well, you... you, you well, I think that's yeah. ex- you hit exactly the problem. I mean, yeah. so if you if you're dealing with an, an essentially contestable concept, yeah. uh, then then the whole question shifts from what is literature yeah. to who's deciding yeah. and what kind of structures you've got and to who put. Has the last say. And who has the last say? Abs- yeah. Absolutely right. It's crucial. And in fact, within the UK mm. uh, and specifically within the English context, mm. that's been one of the arguments going back to T. S. Eliot and E. M. Forster in the 1950s mm. as to why no board as such should be set up. So there are these boards that deal with literature boards, for instance, in Australia, New Zealand, there was this bizarre uh, one in South Africa, of course, but yeah. it was that was straightforwardly a censorship board, yeah. um, where they are tasked specifically to protect literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the, in the similar sort of situations emerged in the, the Irish censorship context. But in, in England, one of the specific reasons for resisting that view even though there have been efforts, and there are legally now efforts to get experts to testify in courts mm. on, on behalf, but to set up a defined board, mm. um, uh, they've been resisted because it's a question of, so who are the right people? Mm. And then it becomes a question, and, and that is so contested and so debatable but that it's been decided not to have that kind of board at all. Mm. Uh, instead, what happens is you get ad hoc groups that then um, emerge as the expert testi- testifiers in a, tr- in a particular trial. It's remained, in other words, within the jurisdiction of courts. To Why make should decisions. courts be a better place to think about this than, than experts? I mean, so f- in terms of the arguments within the UK, the context yeah. is simply that they would be more ad hoc, that it would be mm. set up specifically under, under changing conditions. You wouldn't have this kind of uh, routinely uh, um, uh, established clientele, if you like, or, or configuration of membership of the board, which would be yeah. just so debatable and so, so contested in itself that it could not do anything effective. It seems to me that the literature question, or the concept of literature, would be... I mean, I've been thinking about this after reading your work, as to whether or not you, can, you could actually get rid of the notion of literature uh, altogether. Mm. Um, and it seems that you're forced into a discussion, or a close discussion, of the boundaries of literature by the structure of exemptions. Yeah. Right? So that we, 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 in statutory frameworks, look at, we say... There's two, two factors here. The one is that these are often statutes that are invoke the criminal law. So you could have, of course, have limitations that don't invoke the criminal law. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly been lots of discussion in feminist circles in the US about how one might regulate pornography through private law sure. rather than criminalizing its activity. Yeah. When you force criminal activity, you then raise the stakes, of course, because yeah. you then raise the, the possibility that someone's liberty will be severely restricted as a consequence of this imposition. And, mm-hmm. st- and it also invokes the state yeah. in a very particular way, in a yeah. p- particularly coercive way. Yeah. Um, you have these criminal statutes, and then you have these exemptions, almost as if you're in the framework of self-defense. You say, but sir, it was self-defense. You say, no, but sir, this was literature. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it seems to me that there's something gone wrong about this framework. 
um, that particularly when we look at the background rights that are actually at play in this discussion. So really what we're talking about is freedom of speech or freedom of expression, um, where we, we want to be thinking about, well, what are the legitimate constraints on those rights, rather than saying, here the state is justified in criminalizing certain forms of expression, and now we have an exemption which allows us to then get into a heated and kind of complicated debate around the notion of literature, which is whether you're in a classification regime in a democratic order, or whether you're in this particularly coercive order of apartheid censorship, we end up at the same discussion. Exactly. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, from a legal kind of, com from a human rights perspective, which is my in interest, you seem to need to turn this whole question around. So if we, let's say, we, let's just take, let's take a sort of experiment that we might be living in an order where we are sitting in this office and we can redesign the world the way we wanted to, which is a classic Oxford experiment. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what, what, what we'd start, we'd have to start off with basic values that our society wants to protect, their autonomy, uh, dignity, exp and these values, if we decide that we are interested in these ideas, mm. we would then start to say, well, when we look at theories of freedom of speech or freedom of expression or even literature or art or any form, we, we see them as, as, as crucial to to self-expression and self-development and self-fulfillment. Um, and in that sense, literature, if we want to call it that, is distinct from political speech, which is another form of speech which is often kind of, um, not often found in the written word, but it could be found in, in, in polemic or, or another form. So, so what I would start, want to see is a kind of discussion around, well, what kinds of values do we want to protect and what is connected to those values? How would we limit those rights, if at all? Because, of course, there's, there's all sorts of background discussions here in different countries where people would say we, don't limit, we, we can't limit the rights. That it's, it's essentially what, what Bernard Williams is saying is, you know, we can't even go into this discussion. Sure. Right? E even though within most jurisdictions, uh, specific limits have always been attached to the freedom of expression. Well, there's, a, there's uh, an argument in the US security. constitutional yeah. framework that, 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 that the First Amendment is absolute. And the way they get around that, of course, is quite complicated. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's led to an extremely elaborate system of, of, of classifications yeah. um, of getting outside of the First Amendment. Yeah. But, but, but um, I don't know what you think of this idea, whether you think of this sort of t turning that's on its head instead of seeing literature as an exemption from state coercion, we start off with the notion that literature is fundamental and that state limitations of this thing, whatever it is, have to be justified. I think that's absolutely spot on because in a sense what it, to my mind, uh, again referring primarily to the postscript of the book, yeah. um, one of the things that it captures is the extraordinary contradiction mm. in the current situation in South Africa between the constitutional provisions and the Publications Act, a specific act that mm. covers the publication, which set up the new classification board mm. that they have in South Africa that replaced the old censorship, apartheid censorship bureaucracy. Although in many ways it's rather similar mm. to the apartheid censorship bureaucracy. It is a modernized classification board. Mm. Um, and the thing that seems to me that it really actually, my discussions with you and what you've pointed out have, mm. have alerted me to much more readily is the contradiction is fascinating because on the one hand, you have in the Publications Act specific clauses exempting literature. Again, not only from the things that are um, uh, deemed illegitimate by the, by the Bill of Rights, so uh, racial hatred, for instance, or religious hatred, 
uh, incitement to imminent violence, those sorts of things. There's specific exemptions written into the Act that if it's a work of literature and it still advocates racial hatred with the intent to uh, cause harm, Mm. uh, that it would be exempt. Uh, equally with uh, bestiality, child pornography, those. If, if, it's, if it's a literary work that includes so something like Nabokov's Lolita, for instance, yeah, yeah. is going to be protected, because, uh, but it's, again, it's under the logic of exemption. Mm. And what's fascinating about that is that one of the key people behind the Publications Act, in fact, the, the chair of the task force that, uh, that set up the, the new Publications Act, was um, a former key figure in the apartheid censorship bureaucracy yeah. called Kubus van Rooyen. And uh, Kubus van Rooyen was in many ways fighting the battles that he fought in the late apartheid era in the 1980s to try to get literature exempted right. from the censorship law, which never, he never succeeded in. Yeah. They continued not to offer formal exemption, although they had this strange system of special committees that protect the literature, supposedly, yeah. Yeah. which created all sorts of arbitrariness. So in many ways there's a kind of a legacy of those old battles mm. against the apartheid regime built into the Publications Act. Meanwhile, on the other hand, the Constitution seems to me, and uh, you know this better than I do, but it seems to me one of the most avant-garde, progressive constitutions in the world, mm. in particular because it has not only um, the uh, um, positive right of freedom of expression endorsed, so this is not a freedom of expression as some sort of negative right, mm. but a positive right of freedom of expression plus a f- positive right of creative activity. That's also specifically... Uh, headlined in the Constitution, uh, in the Bill of Rights, sorry. And then yeah. on the other hand, you've got this principle of proportionality, which in a sense I think is what partly what you were alluding to. Mm. Again, uh, built into the, the Bill of Rights, this is mm. Section 36, which is a kind of a general limitation clause, mm. where under specific conditions, any of the rights in the Bill of Rights can be limited. Mm. Uh, but these conditions have to be rather specific. So that seems to me you know, an extraordinarily interesting kind of example of of the kind of uh, contradictions and tensions that, that history can bring into legal systems. Yeah. That there's, an, there's a kind of a legacy at the level of the Publications mm-hmm. Act, which is in some ways, in many ways, I think, what you're pointing to, com- completely at odds with a totally different kind of thinking mm. at the level of the Bill of Rights. Well, this is, this is part of the, the, the interesting aspect of the formation or the change of legal cultures. I mean, obviously, what South Africa's had to go through is, I mean, se- effectively, the structures of statutes and the impulses that people have when they legislate, whether to go to the criminal law or to the uh, um, civil law for, for regulation of these things, yeah. um, is actually uh, it's, 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 it's deeply embedded in the historical legal traditions that have informed that particular country. So South Africa is a consequence largely, I think, of, of, of influences to do with Roman Dutch law, but largely to do with British common law yeah. and British statutory instincts with respect to which looked to me sort of like ranging is this this right going back to the Victorian area yeah which is about sort of intervening at a criminal level absolutely Um, now what the what the section 16 of the Bill of Rights in South Africa protects is is um, very important in section 1 so it says freedom of the press and other media freedom to receive or impart information or ideas freedom of artistic creativity academic freedom and freedom of scientific research. So these are all forms of expression. Mm-hmm. But what it also says quite clearly is subsection 2, is that the right does not extend to propaganda for war, incitement of imminent violence, or advocacy of hatred that is based on race, ethnicity, gender, or religion, and that constitutes incitement to cause harm. Now clearly the South African Constitution had to do that, because it's one of its overriding 
principles is the protection of equality. Clearly, having come out of the apartheid era, it wanted to redefine that range. But this right, in a sense, has now been inverted because in the, in the publication sphere, you still have a criminal possibility mm -hmm. and the exemption. So you, in a sense, you, what you're putting is Section 2 before Section 1. Yes. Right? So you're saying, we shall criminalize the advocacy of hatred that is based on race, ethnicity, gender, religion, and that constitutes the cyber to cause harm. Mm -hmm. I mean, note here there isn't actually a reference to corruption of morals, which yeah. is a sort of older... Absolutely right. Sort of or blasphemy. Bla or blasphemy, all of those questions. So we shall criminalise it and we will exempt you if we can say that they fall under 1A, B, C, D, or D. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that the, 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 the statute needs to be thinking far more from a rights basis, that the statute starts out again from the premise that there is freedom of, 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 of these particular values, and then it says that the state shall limit these 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 values using different forms of devices. So it yeah. may be that you say well, we, well, the state would want to restrict distribution particularly of a particular text that might be seen by a subsection of your population to be um, um, inciting hatred of a particular religion. Yeah. Now, Section 36 limitation clause proportionality should give rise to that possibility. If we were to design statutes now through the proportionality clause, we would ask ourselves the question, technically speaking, sorry to get technical, but simply, what is the least restrictive way of achieving this goal? Right? We start out with a right, we say here's the possible basis for the limitation, that's incitement of religious hatred, for example, and let's take the satanic versus example that you use in the postscript, mm -hmm. which was discussed in South Africa, and certain restrictions on, limit, on, on, on distribution. This is in 2002. Um, in 2002. Yeah. Now, clearly what you would say is, well, what is the least restrictive way of achieving the outcome of balancing the rights of people to protection some level of their religious beliefs, yeah, their equality, and their perceived notion of the satanic forces as causing offence to their beliefs? Mm -hmm. um, we are balancing two rights, and now we're going to see what is the least restrictive way of doing that. So clearly, the criminal law, as always the last, as always the first resort, yeah, seems to be another problem complicating this element. Absolutely there. right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a hammer cracking the nut yeah. in that sense, and that's why these exemptions become so important. Yeah. Because they're forcing that, that what you're doing is defining literature in the face of state coercion, right? Yeah. You're actually thinking about it very in a very high stakes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's my sort of response to to this idea of. Yeah, it, yeah, it's an interesting thing though, isn't it? Because, um, so the Satanic Versus decision uh, in mm. 2002, so 1988, um, the, uh, under rather peculiar circumstances to do with political contingencies of the moment, yeah. um, the apartheid censors actually banned it yeah. in response to Muslim uh, um, outrage. It, it was, again, specific. The Muslim community in South Africa then was divided, mm. uh, but didn't speak in one voice, certainly. But nonetheless, they responded to this uh, for, for reasons that I go into in the book. We don't need to deal with here. Uh, when it was um, called for it to be unbanned uh, mm. under the new legislation in 2002, the same Muslim groups protested. Um, and what's, I think, really interesting about that decision, specifically in terms of what you've said now, mm. is that the committee uh, of um, experts that had the, the classification committee as it is now, mm. um, specifically in their report is claimed, A, um, that the Satanic Verses was a great work of literature. So they yeah. just said, you know, this is incontestably a yeah. great work of literature. Of course. The literary quality of the Sudanic verses is still debated by literary critics, but nonetheless, they 
of course, took that for granted. Mm. Um, made a case for it. Um, secondly, they said it does not incite religious hatred. Mm. Uh, they made that again, specifically referring to the um, the limitations explicitly yeah. registered in, in, in the Bill of Rights. Um, so they put both of those aside, mm. but nonetheless they, they imposed um, constraints on distribution. Mm. Um, uh, two things really, one is the commercial booksellers can't publicly display the work, yeah. but you can ask for it under the counter as it were. And the other one uh, is that um, you can't, uh, uh, the, no public library. Yeah. Interestingly, they exempted university libraries, but no public library mm. can hold a copy of it. So any, any state-funded library can't hold a copy. Um, and the, the interesting thing is they said, not, not, not incitement to religious hatred, it is a great work of literature, but then we're still going to impose this curb, limited curb, mm. And they did that specifically under the proportionality clause, yeah. which I think is one of the interesting things. So mm. it wasn't a question of, oh, this is religious hatred, mm. and we're going to have proportionality. Well, it seems but it to was me that this, um, this is the, the, the board itself, right? Yeah. This seems to be a slight lot fa fallacy in their argument, which yeah. is, I think really what they were trying to do was to try and not say it's hatred because they wanted to, racial hatred, religious hatred, because they wanted to opt out of the possibility of the criminal criminalization of that particular book, yeah. uh, or, or certain other consequences that might arise, but then they use the proportionality to say that there's some reason to intervene. Now, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with their reasoning, with the board's reasoning, but it seems to me that you could have argued that there was a separate right at play here, which was not necessarily one that was limited by under the subsection of the freedom of speech, but simply that we were balancing two rights to religious belief and um, the respected religious belief, they would have had to be balanced through the limitations clause. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like that it was, it was kind of watertight in the sense of the reasoning. I mean, not familiar yeah. enough, again, yeah. with what, what they were arguing. Well, there's kind of another interesting South African case to throw in there, which yeah. is the one to do with the Danish cartoons yeah. in 2006. Yeah. Um, and there, it seems to me, the situation is quite, quite, uh, quite different. Mm. Um, and not comparable to the decision made the Stanic Versus, mm. simply that uh, what happened there was a, a newspaper was uh, prohibited from reprinting the Danish cartoons that caused the crisis in 2006 yeah. uh, legally by a, a, uh, by a judge's decision mm. where it was explicitly uh, that dignity overrode the right to freedom of expression. Yeah. So there, there was a question, there was no balancing. It was simply dignity trumped mm. uh, the freedom of expression. Well, you could argue there was balancing, but the, it was the balance framework outweighed the, so the dignity essentially outweighed freedom of expression in that situation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, or, or, well, yeah. I suppose what happens is it's automatic. Whenever dignity gets invoked, it's 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 a trump card. Yeah. Um, you can't say this is an infringement of this is a fundamental infringement of people's dignity, and it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Except the complication so, always comes in that some people will come back and say, "Well, hang on, the freedom of expression is a fundamental aspect of human dignity." That's yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So that, that complicates the dignity, that complicates the dignity expression yeah. division. Yeah. In terms of the various things that we've been covering, if you think about it now, the situation that we're in now, my sense is that there are new questions that have to be asked about, if you like, the ethics of literary judgment. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you, how do you make these judgments? Uh, in what circumstances do you make these judgments? Who makes these judgments? Because if we like, from a theoretical point of view, if we have theoretically within literary studies got to the point where there is no longer a, any point in addressing the question, what is literature? Mm. And we simply have to ask the question, who decides?
then it does seem to me we have moved back into a kind of socio-political space in which to think about these issues. But it's a socio-political space and indeed a media space and a legal space that is now so radically different uh, because of the internet, um, because of uh, principles of proportionality, for instance, coming in from the legal perspective, that the kind of thinking that has been going on for, you know, really 150 years in terms of these issues and literature. Literature is something you can protect, you know what it is, uh, or that um, uh, that uh, you can you can define a particular group of experts who can sort it out or, or whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, the, that all that thinking is now up for grabs and, and you know, we're really calling for a radical reassessment. I mean, if I was to come with a radical reassessment of it, I mean, I would say that we should get, we should see whether we can design a system that actually just talks about um, expression, which is limitable, and think more about, more carefully about types of expression and the types of interests that are at stake. So the, the key question is, proportionality is deeply context-based. So that when you're thinking about limitations, you've got to think about what kind of expression it is. So, for example, if it is political speech, whether it is uh, creative speech. Um, now, of course, you may come back and say, well, this is going to raise more questions of, 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 of controversy. But what we might want to be thinking about is, is less about always invoking the most coercive restrictions on these ideas. So there may actually be a very strong call here for clear decriminalization of, of, of racial um, of, of types of expression, whether it's literature or not, that give rise to other rights violations. Yeah. And that would be, I think, a most extreme form of, um, of uh, reform thinking. And you might argue, well, there are some things that have to be stopped. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, this is famous, when you look at the, at the works of freedom of speech theorists, they say, well, it's all very well, they had freedom of expression in Weimar. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then we have to. We, we're always going to be in the realm of the things that are that liberalism is about self self defeating. That the tolerance of all the things we want to be expressed mm. sometimes defeat the systems, in and of themselves. Sure. Yeah. Um, so within that framework, I think I think there may be an argument for looking at use of the criminal law as a mechanism of last resort, um, and, and 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 thinking of different ways and legal devices for limiting or, or for respecting different values of rights within a particular multicultural society.